0: You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you personally? Brexit process.
1: US investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once in a generation vote. Unleashing a global vote.
0: financial crisis. But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Ireland has spoken with a clear, strong voice. I think I should stop now and start again, because I don't think you this is a good start of the debate.
1: Welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast in which we discuss current political events. My name is Cuiva Kiernan and with me today is Dr. Brian Barry, a lecturer from the Law Department in the Technological University Dublin, with whom I will be discussing his new book, How Judges Judge Empirical Insights into Judicial Decision Making. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media via at Welcome Brian. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Your new book came out in December so what inspired you to write a book on this topic?
0: And Thank you for having me. Um, I suppose it's from two perspectives maybe. I started out, I qualified as a solicitor and as a trainee in litigation you're exposed to this completely new environment and when you're in the courtroom suddenly the law books come to life if you like. And uh, I remember being involved in this one case where we had rigorously prepared, uh, we had checked and rechecked, cross-referenced all our papers. We were very sure of the law. And on the day we lost, and we were reasonably sure that we were going to win. So it really did seem that at least to some extent that there were other factors at play. And I think all solicitors and barristers, they eagerly await the answer to the question well what what judge have we got what draw do we get and why is that what is it that that makes the difference so as I moved on to academia I began to read up on that and immerse myself in this incredible literature and they've conducted the most extraordinary research on how judges judge uh, putting lawyers and judges into MRI scanners to see if they behave differently or increasingly incredible incredibly sophisticated mock trials, the use of AI and experiments run at judicial training days. All of this is wonderful work. And the overriding impression is uh, one of kind of a hardly surprising truth that judges are mere mortals like the rest of us. And this can sometimes affect judicial outcomes. So I thought I'd put some order on that. And, you know, this this hugely impressive, but somewhat disparate body of work from psychologists, political scientists, economists, and put it into one volume. So it's really an exercise in, I suppose, uh, standing on the shoulders of giants and trying to communicate that research to those who need to hear it the most, the judges themselves, for the lawyer who, you know, knowing the judge is as important a skill as any, for, any uh, for the litigator. So what is it to know the judge and what is the measure of that? And also law students, you can immerse yourself in as many textbooks as you like, but hopefully this is another lens through which to investigate judging.
1: That's great. You talked a little bit there just about empirical studies, and you talked about those in your book as well. And you looked at some empirical studies on the personal characteristics of the judiciary. So, did you find that there were any surprising results produced by any of these studies? Any, any studies that you said, that's, that's very unusual, I, I didn't expect that result?
0: Sure. Um, so, when we talk about personal characteristics, we, we think in terms of demographics, if the gender of a judge or uh, their, their race or ethnicity. And um, it can be somewhat forced to correlate a bare characteristic such as race or ethnicity and, or gender and correlate that to judicial decision-making trends, right? So there's so much more at play. But nevertheless, there are some rather striking studies out there on this. And One that I suppose maybe did surprise me was about U.S. appellate judges that they were more likely to overturn the decisions of black lower court judges than they were to overturn white lower court judges. Even accounting for, you know, them being on the same court or a political partisanship experience. If you wash all of those variables out, you're still left with this rather stark finding that maybe there was this subtle implicit racism between colleagues depending on their position in the hierarchy. Uh, within uh, the bench, within uh, the judiciary. I suppose it is still important to bear in mind that all these sorts of studies are so jurisdiction specific, but nevertheless, that was one that really stood out. I think as well, what is hardly surprising is how often these studies are undertaken and that they don't find any difference, and it, particularly in gender and judging. And whether there are any differences between how uh, men judges and women judges uh, decide cases, it's often striking how often they cannot find a difference. And that maybe isn't all that surprising. And there might be an element of essentialism at play here, this assumption that women and men will decide cases differently. But a lot of that research hasn't borne a huge amount of fruit, which I think is kind of interesting in itself.
1: And it kind of speaks to the fact that I know there are a few people looking at personal characteristics of the judiciary who wish that those types of empirical studies would cease and people would stop almost beating the dead horse at this stage.
0: Sure, that, that there are assumptions at play. I suppose when you reflect on that and think about other studies maybe that have shown the differences, there may be some value, of course, in, in some of it. But yeah, there is, there is an argument to be made on both sides of, of that
1: definitely definitely Uh, you looked and said that when you were writing this book that the aim of it was to help judicial actors make better fairer decisions striving towards more perfect justice so that term perfect justice what does that look like to you Uh,
0: that's a it's a big question um (laughs) uh, there there is a lot to that but i suppose just in terms of how you might use this research um particularly experimental research where uh, judges bravely serve as judicial equivalents of lab rats, rats essentially. And it's reached this wonderful tipping point where it is robust enough for judges to learn from it. And I think if we want to strive for more perfect justice, as it were, then this research has, has to play a role. And maybe there is a little too much deference afforded to the judiciary in terms of how they go about training or even accountability in some in some instances but maybe that's sort of part of the deal if the judiciary in a state is to be perceived as an authoritative body but a little bit more engagement with research would be would move in the right be a move in the right direction I think and it the research allows judges meaningfully to self-reflect on their practice to learn from each other I think in fairness as well aside from and focusing all of your energy on the judges themselves you also also have to look at it in a wider context and you can't be too myopic about the role of the judge and concentrating exclusively on them you maybe have to think about uh, how judges need to be given the political space to undertake their task in order to flourish and you take the example of maybe Irish constitutional law I'm quite conscious that there have been a number of examples over the years where judges have been given that space to do their thing, to make a ruling against the state, and the political conditions are allowed allow for that. So that's important, of course, that separation of powers in a truly meaningful sense has to be there in order to get towards a perfect justice. So you can look at it from a number of perspectives, but maybe there are two that I think of when I think of that question.
1: Yeah, and that that term as well, that has changed over the years. It's obviously obviously a very dynamic term where the meaning of it continues to change and will continue to change into the future, which brings us on to AI. So you dedicated the last chapter of your book to discussing judging and artificial intelligence. So how do you think AI is going to be influencing judging into the future?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think 10 years from now judging will look very different and I think initially and this is already beginning to happen of course I think AI will serve predominantly as assistive technology Uh, that work is already uh, beginning and it will help to triage cases case management uh, whereby rule-based AI systems will consider case applications from litigants and help to filter out cases that may not meet certain minimum standards. And the benefits are in the efficiency that that can bring, of course. Uh, if we have backlogs of in the thousands or in some jurisdictions, in the millions of court cases, then that, those systems become very attractive. But uh, insofar as AI is going to aid judging in a really substantive sense uh, and helping out with actually composing the judgments themselves, Again, that's just beginning to happen, and we have examples in Malaysia from last year where a Malaysian court relied on an AI system to recommend sentencing decisions in two drug possession cases, and the way that that machine did that is by analysing trends and judgments from similar cases from the last few years. In China, AI systems give judges abnormal judgment warnings, a little nudge that they're outside of their normal parameters. It's being used in debt proceedings in Netherlands. So there's this gradual encroachment, if you like, of AI technology, and it will it will start out r- small routine tasks maybe, and then it will gradually move towards more complex cases. There's a difference between ruling on a case about whether someone got a contract of employment or not, and on the other hand, how to discern if someone's constitutional right to privacy is being breached. It's a whole other layer of complexity. But of course, with natural language processing and the, the, the inexorable march of technology, it's, it's, it's absolutely within the reach of 50 years from now to consider AI judge, judges that will be seamless, indeed, maybe even to be able to outperform judges in their human form, as we know it. So is it technically possible? Yes. Is it commercially viable? Inevitably. But the thing is, then, are we going to actually accept this? Is it morally acceptable to have AI judge systems? So equally, there, there, there may be something lost in terms of the stagnation or, or, or in terms of stagnation in the development of the law. So uh, there's a, a, a legal technologist, Richard Susskind, who writes about this. And he asks, might the next Donahue and Stevenson pass unnoticed? So these big moments in common law development that may be cast aside if AI judges were to, were to run the shop, as it were. So it's going to be interesting. Law firms are certainly starting to use it. They're not so much to aid the judge, but to circumvent them. And if AI systems are able to answer, what are my chances of winning, then that's going to be a useful resource for, for the, the, the client and the law firm. So it's fascinating. Who knows where we'll go with it? But it is inevitable and it's here to stay.
1: And it's interesting as well, from an Irish jurisdiction point of view, you know, Irish judiciaries were very reluctant to even accept iPads in courtrooms and using those instead of the the paper folders. And then obviously now with COVID, we've moved to a stage where a lot of our cases are being held online. So it'll be interesting to see whether artificial intelligence is embraced wholeheartedly by the Irish judicial system. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think, you know, necessity being the mother of invention, you, you, you have seen, in fairness to the Irish judiciary in the last couple of years, particularly, a full acceptance, uh, I think, of, 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 of technology in the sense of moving to online and There have been uh, strong moves in that direction, but there there are still so many improvements that can be made. And maybe it does take a catalyst like the pandemic to move everything in that direction. So the ball is certainly rolling now and it will continue. And it will be interesting to see how the Irish judiciary adapts.
1: We talked a little about judicial deference and about the public's perception of the judiciary. Do you think That any of that would be lost if we embraced ai judging
0: yeah maybe i mean there's something uh, well not comforting but something of you know the day out in court and the fact that you can eyeball people around the room and you see the judge making that decision for you or against you but there is that sense of civic engagement and it being a public forum and something may be lost the Spice Girl song comes to mind. Um, I need somebody with a human touch. But uh, that is not something they would have had in mind when they were writing that song, no doubt. But anyway, <laughs> um, no, absolutely. I think there is uh, uh, that sense that a court and even the courtroom as a place to go. It's a place of you know societal engagement, civic engagement. And if we lose that, then will there be less... Uh, I suppose, acceptance of the judiciary as a whole and that judicial systems work for the people rather than um, maybe more for the state or for the wealthy client in a law firm. So it will be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out.
1: Yeah. And like, like you said, it's, all, it's already been used in, separ- in different jurisdictions to help with kind of sentencing, even if it could help with sentencing for, for minor cases, or, you know, instead of sentencing, recommending fines, et cetera, it could be used. There's there's so many advantages to a system like that, especially for judicial systems who are already overburdened.
0: Yeah, um, like absolutely. Already I think that the, the thing that we all have to be conscious of is, of course, that AI machines, at least when they're starting out and there are different iterations, is that you, you have to give them information to begin with in order to process these things. And there's a question mark hanging over the quality of that information to begin with. So the, the, the expression bias in, bias out comes to mind. So if you put bias into a machine, if there are biased information, if there is biased information going into the machine to begin with, then what comes out may even exaggerate or exacerbate the, the effects of that. So it is important to be conscious of, how we use this and to constantly review it and to ensure that while there may be efficiencies that that's not to the detriment of the quality of the output ultimately
1: brilliant and then finally this is slightly it's related to your book but it's a slightly slightly different topic in Ireland at the moment we're expecting new legislation to be drafted about the appointment of our judges so do you anticipate that our current system of appointment is going to be drastically changed in some way from this legislation?
0: Well, it remains to be seen what will emerge from the legislation itself. I think in terms of the bigger picture of how we nominate judges for, for the bench, constitutionally, it will remain the same system. So the power broker will be the government and even individual members within it. Uh, That's the way the constitution is designed and uh, whatever legislation may emerge will not change that. And it is about setting up a structure such that the nominations or the recommendations from government to the president who formally appoints those judges, those structures that are in place may well be the difference between a more accountable, transparent, best practice system for appointing judges and not. And again, we we, we need to consider what's happening overseas how and indeed considering this research, how it can inform selection exercises on, on a merit basis. In the UK, even up in Belfast, there are so many more processes before a judge will get to that stage where they're recommended. So selection exercises, role play exercises, examinations. In other words, the candidates have to be put through their paces and that isn't happening at the moment. And that can be the real difference that can come from reforming the legislation in this area. And it will be after the legislation is introduced and it will fall to this new commission to consider how that recruitment process will be performed. There's so much talk about who does the appointing. And not enough talk maybe about how it's actually done. It's a recruitment exercise. And in Ireland, who is a judge or who becomes a judge? Normally, very strong litigators, uh, successful solicitors and barristers. And there's a big difference between being an excellent litigator and an excellent judge. One fights doggedly on one side of the legal argument. And then on the other hand, you have judges who have to balance that up. It's an entirely different skill set. Now, there are overlaps, of course, knowledge of law, court procedure, but arguing the law and deciding on the law are fundamentally different things. And hopefully this commission can address that meaningfully to consider who is going to be good at actually deciding cases, which is ultimately what being a judge is all about.
1: It'll be interesting as well to see what their motivations of recruitment are um i know there's a, there's been a lot talked about recently in other jurisdictions and in an irish jurisdiction about having a more diverse judiciary that's more representative of the population of of the population of the jurisdiction so i know say in in scotland and in the english and welsh jurisdiction they have not diversity targets but they have recommendations on how to recruit a more diverse judiciary and you can see that in England and Wales that is being successful, but in Scotland there's been less success with that. So it'll be interesting to see from an Irish perspective whether they adopt those same guidelines in relation to judicial diversity.
0: Yeah, I mean absolutely. We're, we're making moves in that direction and that is definitely an important development. But um, whenever I think of Gender diversity on courts and on panel courts in particular. I'm, I'm always reminded of of Ruth Bader uh, Ginsburg's comments about um, nobody is sh- or, or everyone's shocked when I suggest that there could be nine women on the Supreme Court. But there have been nine men for so many years, and nobody's ever raised a question about that. And that kind of comes back to what we were speaking about earlier about how maybe there may not uh, in the vast vast majority of uh, areas and arenas of law be any distinction uh, between how men and women uh, judges judge but nevertheless and you've hit the nail on the head it's about representativeness it's about a judiciary that uh, genuinely reflects the community and we, we think maybe from an irish constitutional law perspective of the case of de burka about gender representation on juries and maybe this is, in a similar sense, our, our moment um, many decades on to, to consider how we can attain uh, a, a truly uh, diverse merit-based judiciary. And the two can go hand in hand. There's absolutely no uh, suggestion that, it, or, or, or no reason I see it why, why they can't. And it is encouraging to see the, 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 the percentages shift over recent years, but we're certainly not there yet.
1: Yeah, and and having a more diverse judiciary, also encompassing individuals from minority communities in Ireland, that isn't you know isn't just gender based, but encompasses all minority communities in Ireland. That would be it would be a very interesting thing to see the Judicial Appointments Commission or or whichever body ends up ends up recommending appointees to the government. It it would be interesting to see them adopt something around that.
0: So any any final thoughts before we close? Um, No, I mean, other than uh, just, I suppose, to 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 make people aware about this wonderful body of research that's out there. And I think it can be so helpful for law students, for politics students who want to read a little bit beyond the doctrinal aspect of learning uh, law. And this research is it's scattered around the social sciences disciplines. And it's important that those giants that I st- stand on the shoulders of, that they talk to each other as much as they can. And they are really beginning to do that. There are any number of forums happening, but also that judges and lawyers will start to, to, to listen and embrace it. And they already have. Of course they have. But it is a fascinating time for a judicial scholarship and we, we have to embrace it as much as we can for the better, that more perfect justice that we spoke of earlier on.
1: That's a lovely note <laughs> to end on.
0: Idealistic, so so for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, very idealistic, but it's lovely. So thank you so much for speaking to me and we'll, we'll end it
0: there. My pleasure, thank you.
1: So thank you all for listening to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast on How Judges judge with Dr. Brian Barry. His book is available to purchase through Rutledge and all good booksellers. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or find us on social media via Dublin LPR or our website DublinLPR.ie. This podcast will also be aired on the Swatch Radio Navi Mumbai and Galway's Flirt.fm. Comments, questions and suggestions are very welcome via contact at DublinLPR.ie. And this was Cuiva Kiernan, and I wish you all a very pleasant day. Thank you all so much.